This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to talk about one of those rare events. As historians, we we don't like to think anything is very rare. We think it repeats, but uh, this is a rare event, uh, the impeachment of the attorney general in Texas. Uh, This is only the third time that uh, an impeachment like this has occurred. It's the first time an attorney general in Texas has been impeached. The two prior impeachments were of a governor in the early 20th century and then a judge in the 1970s. So this is a very rare occurrence. And we're going to talk today about why this happened in the second largest state in the union, what it means, what it means about our democratic process uh, throughout our country today. Texas is often an area that uh, receives a lot of attention because of its prominence within the Republican Party. And this was an impeachment of a Republican attorney general, Ken Paxton, by a Republican House in Texas. So why did this occur? What does it tell us about our democracy? And what does it tell us about the future of law and order in our society in Texas, in the United States, and uh, around the world in many ways? Uh, We're fortunate to be joined today by a good friend, prominent public official, and really a leader in legal circles and in political circles in Texas, someone who knows more about Texas politics than anyone I've ever met. Uh, This is Joe Jaworski. He is a third-generation Texas trial attorney. That means he knows where all the bodies are buried. He's also a former mayor of Galveston, Texas, where he uh, really led the city to great acclaim. Uh, He served as a law clerk to the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Fifth Circuit, and he's now spent 30-plus years in private practice as a trial attorney, a mediator, a legal commentator. He's someone who I know uh, people all around the state and the country turn to to understand Texas law and politics and turn to to get things done in Texas law and politics. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Jeremy, gracious introduction. Thank you so much, and hello to Zachary. Hello. Zachary is sitting here, of course, ready with his poem as always. Uh, What's the title of your poem this week, Zachary? Musings on the Great Liars and One Smited Attorney General. (laughs) I'm really excited to hear this one. I'm going to put my seatbelt on as you read this one. Go ahead. The Reverend sends his hatred out to the vast stampede, his pipe dreams fast becoming what the lords decreed words so warped in this telling their holiness does fade the same old lyings oft in prophets masquerade the speaker sings the songs salutes the checkered flag his wild fears elicit their pride from a rag truth twisted in the sentences the masses sway and curve the service of another oft becomes a reason not to serve The lawgiver flashes his smile to the crowd. The laws he tells are truthless, pompous, loud. Eyes crooked in this grimace, his face does seem to bend. The bells of justice having rung must surely ring again. So grin away, ye unyielding bundle of falsity, your triple chins of rolling viscosity. (laughs) For though we haven't seen each lie turned upside down, at last we've thrown one lofty liar to the ground. (laughs) 
<laughs> wow, Zachary, you're really kicking a dead horse there, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. I'll tell you, Jeremy, that's so good it's going to get banned soon. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Though I'm not sure there might be some Republicans who want to promote that poem. What do you think, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Zachary, what's your poem about? Well, my poem is about um, the uh, the the long line of demagogues in Texas politics, uh, of which Ken Paxton is only is only one, um, but also uh, about how important it is, uh, even in a climate in which truth is often obscured. Uh, for one person, one example uh, where uh, the truth is defended and where where where, where political courage um, really does win. Uh, at least temporarily, and even if if this impeachment uh, doesn't exceed, doesn't succeed when it goes to trial in the Texas State uh, Senate uh, later this year, at the very least, uh, this will show that uh, lies and uh, illegal behavior do have consequences mm -hmm. in this state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Joe, what happened this weekend? I have to confess, as a historian and a political junkie like you, and someone who follows things. I was still a little stunned how quickly we went to the impeachment of someone we had long known was, as Zachary said, a liar, a demagogue, an incompetent attorney general. Uh, why did this happen now? It is remarkable. I have to just reflect on the timing. Uh, here's a man who has been in office uh, for over 20 years uh, as a House of Representatives uh, member, as a senator, and then Attorney General, who just won his third election as Attorney General. Why now, um, two days before Sine die? Um, Jeremy, I think it has to do uh, with, you know, the, cam the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, uh, there were so many things said about Paxton, the great weight of it, you would think they could just pick any one. But I think the hubris, or as I've, I've heard referred to, chutzpah, uh, has... Uh, gotten a new dictionary definition, uh, and, and it has a picture of Ken Paxton walking into the House of Representatives with a $3.3 million bill that he fabricated as a way to settle a lawsuit so he wouldn't have to tell the truth, and said, here, you pay for it. And so I think that that rubbed some people the wrong way. Uh, that was back in February, March, 2023, uh, a, a private uh, decision was made to impanel uh, a general investigation committee, which took, you know, a sober amount of time, two months, uh, to do the hard work and finally produce their report. And what was interesting is Paxton must have gotten tipped off about it because that's when he made the outrageous, uh, um, uh, you know, best defense is a good offense accusation feeling <laughs> was drunk and then all hell broke loose right right and and why do you think that this 3.3 million dollar demand from the state which which as you say shows a lot of chutzpah this was following a lawsuit in which he had fired uh, a number of the top state justice department officials because they disagreed with him and because they were upset that he was providing benefits uh, illegal benefits to a developer in Austin as well as who knows what else um why was that the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back? You'd think he had done so many other things. He's already been indicted for other crimes. You, you know, at, at some level, you would think this wasn't out of character for him. Well, I, I mean, first off, take it from me, that was a full value settlement. 
And so it was just the hypocrisy that for a year and a half from the date uh, these gentlemen, these conservative loyal uh, employees were fired uh, and then had no recourse but to file a whistleblower lawsuit. From day one, that lawsuit was filed. Ken Paxton couldn't denigrate it enough. Uh, you know, it was a frivolous lawsuit. It, it had no merit. And he filed what's known as a plea to the jurisdiction. And lawyers know that that basically says to the court, don't even look at the substance of this. This is defective on its face because you can't sue the Office of Attorney General uh, for a whistleblower infraction. Um, now, that was denied by the trial court in Austin. Uh, it was appealed, and his argument was again denied by the appellate court. And then he appealed it to the Texas Supreme Court, where it has sat for over a year at a time appropriate and convenient to Ken Paxton. He uh, uh, goes to mediation and essentially, in less than a few hours, uh, agrees to a full value settlement. So I think that it was also not just, you know, here, you pay it for my conduct, but it was also the fact that it was a full value settlement. I know 3.3 million compared to the, you know, billions in the budget uh, is peanuts, but I think that it finally struck some of the lawyers who perhaps are in the House of Representatives as just a masterpiece of hypocrisy. And, and do you see this as evidence that um, there are a critical mass of Republicans who, in the House at least, who believe in the integrity of the Office of Attorney General? Because in some ways, many of us observing this had, had lost all hope, right? It's been clear for a long time that Ken Paxton has not been acting as an impartial uh, law uh, leader for the state, that he's not been the highest legal official in the state. He's actually been a partisan and a bully and a demagogue, as Zachary pointed out in his poem. Uh, is this evidence of a change of heart among some Republicans? Well, it, it's interesting because I'm looking at the list of uh, the, the vote tally uh, of, of who voted I for the resolution of impeachment and nay. And you're right. There was, was it 61 uh, Republicans who, who voted? I think it was 60 Republicans and 61 Democrats, if I'm not mistaken. 60 Republicans, 60 yeah. Republicans out of uh, 86. And, you know, that's obviously uh, more than two thirds, not that you need that margin. But, you know, I think that it, it goes to show that uh, it's a great argument for separation of powers, you know, in the Texas Constitution. Everybody in the legislature was just happy to let Ken Paxton, you know, be the, the bully and the, and the, the boogeyman uh, because, you know, he certainly is not short on lawsuits to file and he kind of keeps the attention on him so the legislature can do their thing. Uh, but uh, obviously, you know, while we look at this list of people uh, that we associate with certain uh, legislative bills that might be seen as repugnant by many, uh, they came together uh, and stood uh, as a cohesive unit, uh, and it was an overwhelming vote. Uh, you know what was it, Jeremy? One twenty-one to twenty-three, and I think I think even someone who was absent finally added their name to it. So I think it's really going to wind up being one twenty-two. That's an overwhelming majority. Yeah, and it's it's one of the most substantial and meaningful bipartisan acts the Texas House has taken this session. As I understand it, uh, there's been a longstanding tension in the past 10 years or so between the Texas State House and the Texas State Senate. Um, could you maybe explain for our listeners in Texas, but also those outside the state, 
uh, how the system of impeachment uh, works in Texas um, and, 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 and the sort of back and forth between the House and the Senate um, that, that led to this moment. Oh, thank you, Zachary. Yeah, we certainly got a, a primer on you know, federal impeachment uh, during the Trump administration. And it's similar uh, to federal, but with some important differences. So you start, obviously, uh, the House you know, can draft resolution, uh, which it did in this case through a committee, a general investigation committee. And it came up with 20 counts, and they're very uh, salacious. Um, and, you know, it's like a 20-count indictment that a grand jury in a criminal setting would, would issue. But here's the difference. It's not a criminal uh, uh, hearing uh, or a criminal proceeding. Uh, there is no, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt standard. This is a purely political product of our Texas Constitution. And that is why the House acts as the grand jury. And then they prefer, is the term of art, their impeachment articles to the Senate, which may have already happened, Zachary, literally, as, as we sit here today. And I know the listeners will be hearing this after Sine die. Um, when the Senate receives the articles, there's certain timelines that have to obtain. Uh, and roughly 30 days is what I would expect they will start their trial. So if the House presents like a grand jury, they're sort of indicting uh, Mr. Paxton, the Senate is where we will have lawyers and witnesses and documents and evidence. It'll be it'll be truly like a trial that 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 we're familiar with. The Senate has to either convict or acquit. And unlike the House, which took the entire twenty uh, count articles of impeachment as one vote, they didn't do twenty separate votes. That's going to be different in the Senate. They're going to do a vote on every single one of these, and he's either going to you know, be acquitted or uh, convicted. To convict, you need two-thirds of the senators present. Now, let me take a breath and see, you know, if we want to keep going, because there's more. Well, yes, and, and I would just want to bring out a couple of things, Joe, in your excellent summary here. First, Sinida, for those outside the state, that is when the Texas legislature is no longer in session. It meets approximately six months out of two years. That's the end of session, though, of course, there will probably be a special session, so this gets infinitely complex. But as I understand it, Joe, impeachment and the, the trial for the impeached attorney general, that happens out of session. They do not have to be in session for that, correct? That's correct. And, you know, the session is going to obviously end, um, you know, we're recording this uh, on a Monday. It'll, it'll end tonight. And, and then whether there's a special session for Governor Abbott's, you know, role of, you know, or menu of, of items, that's one thing. Uh, the governor needs to issue a proclamation to call the Senate into order to try Warren Kenneth Paxton. Oh, he has to. I did not know that. He has to issue yes. a proclamation for that to happen. Yes. And if he does not within a certain amount of time, then the lieutenant governor can do it. If the oh, lieutenant governor does not do it within a certain amount of time, then the president pro tempore of the Senate can do it. If he or she doesn't do that, then a majority, not two thirds, but a majority of the senators can petition that they do it. I mean, it's going to happen. The Constitution requires the trial. 
Now, what's interesting and different from uh, federal impeachment is uh, in the federal case, uh, an impeached president or an impeached federal officer of any other level uh, stays in office until uh, a trial determination. In the case of Texas and in the case of Attorney General Ken Paxton, he is now suspended from office until the outcome of his trial in the Senate. Is that correct? That is correct. And, And that's one of the unique differences that I was referring to. And how interesting. I mean, uh, the fact is, the moment he was impeached, uh, 5 p.m. Friday, as I recall, uh, he was immediately suspended from office. And, you know, it wouldn't have been inappropriate for the Department of Public Safety to post guards at his office to make sure that he wasn't trespassing. And he will be suspended until any determination is made in the trial. So what what is to happen if the Senate just sits on this for weeks and months? Is there is there a time period when they must have the trial? I, I have not been able to find, you know, you know, in the event a majority don't petition, you know, then something else happens. I mean, I, I think this is the third time this has happened. And it it came to pass in Paul Ferguson in 1917 and uh you know, O.P. Carrillo in 1975 uh, that, uh, you know, the Senate took it up. I, I think in let's look at O.P. Carrillo's uh, example. Uh, he was impeached uh, in June and uh, of 75 and the the uh, Texas Senate took up his impeachment trial on September 3rd, 1975. So, you know, there was 60 days or so between uh, the articles being preferred to the Senate and the beginning uh, of the uh, Senate trial. And, and you know, Jeremy, what's interesting is O.P. Carrillo, as you pointed out, was a district judge. And so there was a simultaneous proceeding ongoing at the time of his impeachment trial in the Senate that was um, before the uh, Texas State Judicial Qualifications Commission. And at one point, after several days, the senators adjourned for like months so hmm. that the judicial hearing could take precedence and, and be heard, which, you know, was appropriate. And I've, I've read the record on that. When that judicial commission completed its work, it was 30 days of testimony. They incorporated that into the Senate trial, which ended on January 23rd and itself uh, with about 23 days of proceedings, but it took them from September 3rd to January 23rd to uh, accomplish 23 days on the record. Right. So, so we could have quite a while in which uh, Paxton is suspended from office and at the moment his deputy is serving, but the governor could also appoint an interim. Is that correct? Well, that's right. Uh, uh, he may. And uh, the Constitution is very clear that he may appoint a provisional attorney general. And, and Abbott has not done that. I mean, it's just, you know, there's apparently a office of attorney general protocol that says, you know, when Ken Paxson's out, you know, uh, his first assistant, in this case, Brent Webster, uh, becomes the acting attorney general. And interestingly, Brent Webster was, was hired on October 1st, 2020, the day uh, the whistleblowers reported Paxton to the FBI. What do you think um, this means, uh, this particular impeachment um, and the ongoing uh, trial process in the Senate means for Texas politics moving forward and for the Office of Attorney General in particular? 
Well, Zachary, it, it's, it is a moment we will never forget because I, I predict that Ken Paxton uh, will be remembered for a long time. Uh, he's going to be, uh, if history and recent history uh, is any indicator, uh, one of the most uh, obnoxious, um, uh, you know, you know, defendants, if you will, in an impeachment inquiry. I mean, during the House proceeding, which lasted all of four hours, uh, he was texting and calling people, apparently uh, threatening retaliation, you know, in real time, as sent as a Charles Guerin pointed out. And I'm sure we're going to hear more about that. Um, so what I'm going to tell you is that this Senate trial is where the Fisher in Texas Republican Party will be laid bare. It is a internecine conflict of magnificent proportions and and not to be overly political, I'm trying to be right down the middle here, but it, it just goes to show what happens when one team is in charge for too long. I think that's right. I think that's right. And it's striking to me, Joe, I was reading earlier today that um, the, I guess the managers or prosecutors in the Senate of Paxton will be seven Republicans and five Democrats. So that means they're going to be seven Republicans, uh, ostensibly Republicans of very high standing in the party, who are going to be leading the attack on the Republican attorney general um, in the Senate. Um, that's, that's quite extraordinary. What could be better evidence of, as you say, an internecine fight within the party? What is this fight really about? What, what is it that's tearing the Republican Party in Texas apart? You know, I mean, first off, before I answer that, let me preface it by saying we've really got to admire um, the House General Investigating Committee and, yes. and how thorough their work was and how, uh, you know, just direct and frank their presentation was at the impeachment hearing. And I expect that to continue. Um, and Joe, as just as an aside, both Zachary and I were commenting earlier, Andrew Murr, the uh, Republican chair of the committee and really the person who took the lead on this, who is also the grandson of the uh, f- great uh, Texas governor, Coke Stevenson, uh, former uh, the, the other interesting thing about Andrew Murray, I just have to say, is he has an extraordinary mustache. I mean, he really... <laughs> <laughs> which, which uh, you know, he, he wins the, the memorable quote of the day during the, the lead up to the impeachment hearing where he said, this information curls my mustache. Yes. Uh, and, and I thought that was brilliant, you know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, look, you know, for all the partisanship and, you know, people have taken sides and, and they will never meet again. Uh, I will say, as a you know traditional Democrat, I was very impressed uh, uh, with with uh, Representative Murray, and you know he he made me proud uh, to be a Texan because I think he handled that magnificent. Now, to answer your question, uh, what what does it really mean? Like, why is this fissure happening now? Uh, you know, I, I think as a lawyer, you know, we're trained to find the proximate cause of, of an incident, you know, an accident, an injury. And the truth is what you learn in law school is that there are numerous items that can constitute a proximate cause. It's not a sole cause. And so I, I would tell you that, you know, this is what happens when politics become decadent and, you know, when gerrymandering reaches its extension and money gets involved and, you know, culture war uh, has finally, I think, reached, you know, an, an epic moment where it's burst open. And so 
I think that there's two Republican parties in Texas right now. And, you know, anyone in political history knows that happened to the Democrats, too. Um, and, and it was laid bare uh, in the Sharpstown scandal in the early 70s. And, you know, very competent leaders were ejected from office uh, uh, who, who had great political futures. But because of the corruption that in, involved Frank Sharp and the Sharpstown scandal, political um, careers were left in tatters. I think the same thing's going to happen here, starting with Ken Paxton. Uh, you've got uh, people who have done their duty constitutionally already being called rhinos. And we all know what that means, Republican and name only, but just the, the press ignorance that goes into calling someone who's doing their constitutional duty a rhino is everything you need to know what's wrong uh, in the uh, information civil war in that Republican Party. To me, Joe, it, it looks like a Texas analog for what's happening at the national level. Do you see it that way? Yes, yes, it's it's run. It, it's it's like not its DNA, probably in several states, and there is an outsized effect, uh, the Trump effect, if you will, and I think the Republican Party uh, is having contractions down here uh, as we head for the twenty twenty four presidential election. What do you think we can can learn then um, for our national politics uh, and moving into the twenty twenty four? election cycle from this moment? What, what lessons should we take? Uh, bipartisanship is alive and well, and it's actually something that should be intentional, not accidental. Uh, and so, so I think that Texas, you know, for the last 30 years uh, has been a red state. And by that, I mean, all statewide offices have been held by Republicans. You know, you can split hairs as to whether 94 or 98 was the last year, but certainly 94 was the last time any Democrats was like statewide. I'm not even they were all gone, extinct. And, and, you know, that has a consequence. And um, I think the lesson here is that as Mr. Paxton is exited from the body politic, uh, it would not be such a bad thing to go back to uh, compromise, uh, dialogue, discussion, best practices. And it's, it's done best politics, I think, in a, uh, in a compromised but controversial role. I mean, you can't have a trial without a plaintiff or a defendant or a prosecutor and a defendant. You can't have a business transaction without two parties. And how can a growing state like Texas switch? Using the dates I just gave you, in 94, we had 18 million people. In 2024, we're going to have 31 million people. How can a growing, like, significant state like Texas get by with only one party in a political dynamic, in a democracy? So I think that's going to be the lesson, is that it's time to open the door for other ideas. And as I understand it, the Texas House, which is the, the body which, which, which passed these articles of impeachment on Friday, um, institutionally has a lot of, of, of mechanisms to encourage bipartisanship uh, built in, such as the, uh, the, the method of electing the speaker. Is that correct? Oh, it's true. And, and that's why I think Dave Phelan, you know, gets a lot of, uh, you know, ne negative press from some people on the far right side of the Republican Party. But, you know, he, he seems very confident in what he's doing. And, and that's an exact, perfect example that the Speaker of the House is elected from within the membership, which of course involves Democrats and Republicans, uh, because I think you need you know more than just a, the number that constitutes either either caucus. Right. 
And and there's also a sharing of committee chairs and various other uh, bipartisan mechanisms in place uh, in the House that you don't have in the Texas Senate and that you don't have in the American Congress, exa- uh, for for example. Um, am I hearing you say, Joe, that your read on Texas politics, and you have as good a read on it as anyone I know, is that we're moving not necessarily in a anti-Republican direction, but that we're moving in a more bipartisan, moderate direction in our politics? I, I think so. And, you know, there's there's good talent in the Republican Party, there's good talent in the Democratic Party, but what what must be uh, an essential component, whatever party you're in, is that you respect the Texas Constitution, the American Constitution, because after all, that's your oath of office. So, you know, uh, you take an oath to, you know, honor your, your spouse when you get married, and, you know, it is frowned upon, you know, when people have extramarital affairs and break that, you know, holy covenant that you make to your loved one. It's, it should be the same in government. All of these people that get elected take an oath of office to preserve and protect the Texas Constitution and the American Constitution. And there are people who follow that oath scrupulously, and there clearly are those who do not. So the, the, the movement that I see Texas going, and it's a consequential state due to its size and number of electoral votes, is that uh, we've reached the end road uh, of this somewhat uh, authoritarian dynamic, and it's played out interestingly, and it's going to play out in Ken Paxton's trial. So, so Joe, the, the, the last question I want to ask you, we, we always close with a question moving forward, how this history helps us to, to uh, better anticipate the future and to make better decisions for the sake of our democracy going forward. Uh, as you and I have talked about before, uh, there are all kinds of talented people who come into my office. I'm sure they come into your office. I'm sure Zachary meets them also, um, who uh, care about public service, but for the last 10 to 12 years, They've been discouraged from getting involved because it's ugly, uh, because moderate people get attacked, because um, you're forced to pick sides, as you said. Um, If this is a moment when we're breaking out of that, what should um, those individuals who care about the Constitution, who are uh, really about democracy, not about party, how should they get involved? What kinds of offices should they run for? And what should we be thinking about as voters? Right. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. The, 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 the spectrum of service is broad and uh, you should, all of us, you know, look at city council races, school district races, uh, precinct chair opportunities within a particular party, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Um, so, some people, you know, can even serve on a municipal utility district or a water control board. Uh, it, you know, Robert's Rules of Order is a beautiful thing. <laughs> and, and you know, reasoned debate and, you know, public service is a beautiful thing. It, it defines the American experience. And, you know, more to the point, it, it can't just be one party that, that rules the roost or, or one party denigrates, uh, you know, large cities will perhaps policies are different than they are in the Texas legislature by condemning, you know, whole incubators of entrepreneurialism like the city of Houston and Dallas, you know, these wonderful places where people live, work, and and have dreams and aspirations. And what I'd say to this one-party system that that hopefully we're exiting is the famous words of James Graham when he said, give the drum a song. 
<laughs> I, I knew you'd come back to your experience as a drummer. I knew you'd bring it in somehow, Joe. I mean, I mean, there's just so much talent out there. I mean, most people, I think, are, are you know, they just think it's a foreboding thing to do to, to get involved in, in, in public service, but it's actually one of the highest uh, orders uh, of yeah. uh, servant leadership. And and I want to just ask a follow-on. I said that was my last question, but I have to ask this follow-on. Um, if Ken Paxton is removed from office in 2024, there will then therefore be an election, a new election for the Attorney General of the state of Texas at the same time that we'll be electing a president and uh, a junior senator from Texas as well. Um, this was unexpected, but now it looks like that's a real possibility. What do you think are the characteristics that we should be looking for in the in the framework you've described, which is so compelling. What are the characteristics we should be looking for uh, in a, in someone like a new attorney general? Uh, uh, great question. I, I think it should be you know someone not from highly partisan background, maybe someone who has served in local office, uh, someone who is trustworthy in their profession, you know whether it's law or something else, who has a established career as opposed to being a full-time politician who has, you know, been in the system for a long time, because this system is all going to have to stand up and vote. I mean, every member of the House and every member of the Senate is going to be on record as to Mr. Warren Kenneth Paxton. So, you know, I think that there is an opportunity for the governor to appoint someone, uh, a friend, but I, I don't envy that person because whoever it is, is probably going to be the, uh, the object of of ire uh, from the, the Paxton crowd that may have something to say about their longevity in the Republican primary. So I think the 24 election, as you mentioned, is is really where the people of Texas can have their say after this exceptional episode is resolved in the Senate. Zachary, what do you think? I mean, you're watching this as uh, as a young person who I know has been dismayed. I've heard you comment in many contexts about the um, the hypocrisy of so many leaders in our country, in our state, and and particularly in the attorney general's office in Texas, where we had someone who clearly uh, doesn't care about the law, yet he's the highest law enforcement officer in the state. Do you see us moving? Do you moving in the direction Joe is describing, where people will start to look for competence and um, bipartisanship and seriousness, or is this just a blip in a longer period of partisan nonsense? Uh, I'm not sure that it's not the latter, but I do think it it should be inspiring for young people because the senators, sorry, the the members of the House. Uh, here in Texas, who voted to impeach Ken Paxton, are on the whole some of the youngest and 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 most uh, eloquent and engaged uh, young political thinkers in our state. And I think that this shows that that a new generation of of politicians and people who get involved in politics at a very local level. Um, can have a big impact um, on not just uh, the politics of the state or of their local communities, but on the national news cycle. Um, and I think that it also shows that that there is a space for people who might not frame 
um, their their vision of of what a society of laws and, and our democracy means in partisan terms, but who believe that 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 there is a necessity and a responsibility of every citizen to defend uh, our democracy, our state, and our national constitutions. I think that this shows that there's a space for those people in our politics as well. I agree. I have to say, I watched a, a good part of the hearings. I rarely watch the Texas House. It's it's usually boring <laughs> and, and and upsetting. But I did watch this. And I think Zachary is spot on. I would guess you'd agree too, Joe. I mean, there were so many young members uh, of the House, and uh, they're people who on most issues I would disagree with, but I had such high regard for the seriousness with which they approached this issue, their courage. Many of them commented on the record about how they had been bullied by Ken Paxton, by Donald Trump, by Ted Cruz. Uh, These were people whose jobs were being threatened. They were threatened. People were threatening to primary them, but yet they stood up for the right thing in this one moment. Uh, And even though I might disagree with them on their policy positions, it did appear this was a young generation or at least a set of young people who uh, care about the Constitution, as you said, Joe, who care about integrity. And uh, and I think that is inspiring. Do you agree, Joe? I, I I agree wholly, and and I watched every second of the of the of the hearing, and I was in a very uh, happy mood. Not not just because of the outcome, but but how the outcome was reached. It was it was uh, something, as I said earlier, that makes you proud to be a Texan. Uh, the the Texas Constitution was in full regalia that afternoon. And I thought democratic process was. I, I was thinking, as, as all of our listeners know, uh, our inspirations for this podcast are Franklin Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln. And I really was thinking of Lincoln's uh, better angels of our nature, that Lincoln could look out and see uh, some of the most horrible behavior before and during our Civil War, but still also recognize that there was still a spark of goodness and potential in our democracy. And, and, and I think it was there with this as well. Um, and I think it's something we need to build on, which is, which is why we devoted a whole episode to it. Uh, Joe Jaworski, you have shared with us uh, learned insights, your experience, uh, your understanding of these issues. Uh, and we also know that you're going to be a main player in um, the future of our state and our nation. And we're, we're really grateful that you joined us today. So thank you, Joe. Oh, gentlemen, thank you so much. I'm a fan of your show, and I was proud to be a part of it today. Zachary, thank you for your uh, insightful, humorous, satirical uh, poem. You're on a streak here of satirical poems. And uh, thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.